Hello and welcome to RCSI My Health. This podcast explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields. Our goal is to empower you with the right knowledge so that you can make informed decisions about your health and well-being. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello and welcome to the RCSI My Health series, supported by Fleming Medical. I am Deirdre Fitzgerald-Hughes and today we are going to discuss antibiotic-resistant superbugs, can they be stopped? The series explores a wide range of areas in health and well-being and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields with the goal of empowering people with the knowledge to make informed decisions about their own health and well-being. Today I'm joined by Professor Fidelma Fitzpatrick, Consultant Microbiologist, Beaumont Hospital and Head of Department of Clinical Microbiology or CSI, and Dr Caroline McCarthy, General Practitioner and Clinical Lecturer, Department of General Practice or CSI. Welcome to the RCSI My Health series. Um, so we've just come out of um, a global pandemic caused by a uh, virus, SARS-CoV-2, and uh, we've seen how infections uh, for which there are no treatments can affect all aspects of our lives and livelihoods and the whole of society. So November is Antibiotic Awareness Month, so we're turning our attention to another um, healthcare uh, global threat, um, and that is the threat of antibiotic resistance. So we've all had antibiotics at some stage in our lives um, to prevent or treat infection, but these are medicines that we need to be really uh, very careful about. So today we will discuss the challenges that superbugs create and how everyone has a part to play in keeping antibiotics working uh, for uh, the future, for our own health, the health of our loved ones and for the whole of society. So Vdalma, um, what is a superbug and how are they different to other bugs? So a superbug is a microbe that is resistant to an antibiotic. So that's the big difference. And when I say it's resistant to an antibiotic, what I mean is the antibiotic won't work and it won't kill that microbe. Okay. And um, how common are superbugs in Ireland and what are the, the big superbugs that we should be worried about? So in terms of how common they are, Probably the best data we have is from the Health Protection Surveillance Centre and that's on infection and in people's bloodstream. So for example, probably the most widely known superbug is MRSA. So the SA stands for the, the normal bug called Staph aureus. The M orbit is the antibiotic resistant one. And years ago we had much more MRSA than we have now. So Nowadays, about one in four of the SA bugs are MRSA. So there's other superbugs, though, that are coming on the horizon. Um, and the big super superbug is a bug called CPE. So we like confusing people in microbiology and using up the alphabet. And the problem with this CPE superbug is while it's still relatively rare in Ireland, if you get an infection with it, there's almost no antibiotics left. So they're the two extremes. The MRSA that was very common and with lots of intervention, it's reduced. So it's about one in four of bloodstream infection. And then CPE, which is the one we're really very concerned about, principally because if you get an infection, there's very few antibiotics left. 
Okay, and we might come back to CPE a little later on because some of the research that we're doing is is on that uh, that particular bug. Um, and you mentioned other other countries. Um, does Ireland fare reasonably okay compared to other countries in Europe, or is there is there yeah, so so it's 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 if if people are interested, actually, the best thing you can do is Google ECDC antibiotic resistance, and you get these really cool maps of Europe. And basically, we're not as bad as the worst, but we're not as good as the best. So we're probably in the middle um, for most of the superbugs. And there's lots of reasons why some countries have more than the other. And a lot of it is to do with in the past, antibiotics were much more freely available. Um, and also, for example, things like sanitation and infrastructure vary from country to country. But generally, there's much more superbugs in the south of Europe than there is in the north of Europe. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, and now that we know a little bit about uh, superbugs and you've mentioned antibiotics, could, could, can you say a little bit about antibiotics and, you know, what, these these are really powerful medicines. And I know you work in a hospital and we'll get on to Caroline. She's worked in in, in kind of primary care but what difference does antibiotics make to your to patients that you that you look after oh they're simply life-changing um, the hospital I work in Beaumont Hospital and Beaumont simply would not exist without antibiotics we use antibiotics to treat infections so if somebody comes in with sepsis they're life-changing we also importantly use antibiotics to prevent infections so for example some of our patients that um, have cancer or with transplants, their immune system makes them very vulnerable to infection. So if we didn't have antibiotics, these people would die of infection. So from a hospital end of things, the hospital simply wouldn't work. We wouldn't have surgery. So we use antibiotics to prevent infection and surgery. So it, they're commonly prescribed medications in a hospital um, and they're crucial. So how commonly are antibiotics used in, in hospitals and particularly in ICU? So we've good data via the Health Protection Surveillance Centre and we do these snapshot studies every few years and in 2017 four out of ten hospitalised patients were on an antibiotic. So that's pretty common and then in an ICU it's much more common because in the intensive care unit all of these patients need organ support, they have drips, they've got tubes, and generally because of the nature of their illness, they're very vulnerable to infection. So they're very, very commonly prescribed medications. Um, so Caroline, I'll come to you next. Uh, we've talked about antibiotic use in the hospital, but I know that from bringing my own kids to, to see the GP when they, when they were sick, I was never really sure when they needed an antibiotic or not. And I know that a lot of infections are, are viral. So how do you deal with that kind of in, in your GP setting? Because, you know, the symptoms are probably quite similar, I guess. Yeah. Well, I suppose a, a lot of presentations, particularly at this time of year, they are infectious illness. And probably most healthcare interactions are in primary care. And most antibiotics that are prescribed are prescribed in primary care. Um, so it's a big part of our work and I, I think the main thing that, that's important for me when I see patients with an infectious illness um, as a GP, we can never be, and no clinician can ever be 100% certain of the diagnosis, but part of it is sharing with the patient what you think is going on. Um, so certainly, let's say a child who's come in with a fever, most of the time at this year it's caused by a viral respiratory tract infection. 
Um, so sharing with the parents maybe how long you expect the illness to last, what are the warning signs to look out for, is probably the most important information that you can give so that the parent knows when and if to bring the child back. Um, very rarely we might use a delayed prescription for an antibiotic. I feel like there's that sense of, um, you know, when you, when you go to the doctor and you pay for your, your GP, um, you pay for their expertise, I suppose, that you almost want something in return. Is that something, you know, like, because we, we probably know that maybe a little bit of paracetamol for the fever, you know, so how does that work or how do you negotiate that when a patient comes to you and says, I need an antibiotic? Um, and maybe they don't. I suppose there's two things to it really, isn't it? That sometimes the doctor might presume that that's what the patient wants, when in actual fact, what I find most patients are very well informed now. And if you take the time to explain what you think is going on and why an antibiotic isn't needed. So a common um, presentation at this time of year might be acute sinusitis or acute pressure, pain in the sinuses. And actually, we know that when um, an adult presents with this, the likelihood of, a, of an antibiotic benefiting them is quite low. You need to treat 17 people to benefit one person, whereas to harm one person, you only need to treat eight people. So uh, I guess any treatment that we give as a GP, whether it be an antibiotic or any other sort of treatment, there's always risks and there's always benefits, and it's about weighing them up. Um, and explaining that to the patient and I think when when you do that and when you listen to the patient and take on board their concerns and ideas most of the time people um, I certainly find are, are, are agreeable to, yeah. to whatever advice you give. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really important point because while they're life-changing they're still medications and like any medication they can cause side effects. Exactly. And I suppose, you know, diarrhea is the most common one that we think of, um, but they can cause all other sorts of side effects, nausea, rashes. And then sometimes actually when an antibiotic is used in a child with particular viral infections, it can cause a characteristic rash, which can then be misattributed as an allergy to that antibiotic, which can potentially have life changing consequences for that individual if they're labelled as being, for example, allergic to penicillin. Um, because penicillin, as we know, can be a life-saving medication that can sometimes be given, um, you know, if we're concerned that a child, for example, has sepsis while we're waiting for an ambulance to come. Okay, can I just come back to, um, we're talking about side effects there, but uh, I, I guess different antibiotics behave differently for patients. So how do you decide in the community what is the best antibiotic for a patient to take? Well, recently we're lucky there's been guidance published, um, antibioticprescribing.ie is the website, around when to avoid using an antibiotic and also which antibiotics to use for specific conditions. And in fact, um, certain antibiotics have been labelled as green or preferred antibiotics for use in primary care, that is, and others have been labelled as red antibiotics or antibiotics that, that are best avoided. The reason being that those antibiotics are broad spectrum and these are the antibiotics that can promote antimicrobial resistance. And they're also the antibiotics that are often associated with potentially worse side effects like severe diarrhea. Okay. Can, can patients get access to that same information that, that you have access to then? They can, the yeah, so it's a publicly yeah. available uh, website that I certainly use in my day-to-day -day clinical practice. Um, and there's, a, there's an equivalent under the weather.ie um, website available for patients, um, which provides some advice around what you can do when you have a viral infection. Because I suppose here we're talking about what we shouldn't be doing, mm -hmm. um, but there is a lot that you can do. 
um, probably one of the most important things you can do in the first few days of any infectious illness is resting, which is maybe something that we're not so good at doing in this day and age. Um, our immune system needs energy to fight infections. So having rest, getting help with the kids if you can get it, getting, you know, taking time off work. And that's also actually very important mm -hmm. for reducing the spread of these infections because we know the first couple of days of these um, particularly respiratory virus illnesses, people are very, very um, infectious. So if you stay at home, then it's less likely that you're going to spread the infection to others. So I think many of those things that we learned during the COVID pandemic uh, apply to the kind of, uh, you know, viral infections that we're seeing this winter as well. Mm. Is that right? Certainly, yeah. Wash your hands and um, stay at home if you're sick. Um, and then also, I suppose, if you're in one of the at-risk at groups to get vaccinated for influenza and to get your COVID-19 booster, because mm. that can really reduce the likelihood of you getting sick with these infections. And if you are unlucky enough to get sick with it, you're less likely to get very sick with yeah. them if you've been vaccinated. Yeah. That's, how, that's how we're dealing with, uh, you know, trying to limit the use or, or only, only use them appropriately in, um, in the community. But coming back, Fidelma, to you and how, how do we address antimicrobial resistance in the hospital where we, as you said, we do really need to use them. They, they, they help us not only in treating infection, but also in being able to do all of those life-saving and life-changing uh, surgeries. So what, what, what do you do in your hospital to try and, you know, limit um, inappropriate use of antibiotics? So I suppose it's f the hospital's very different to your context, isn't it? We generally have very sick people in most Irish hospitals, you're generally sharing a bedroom and a bathroom with other people. Um, so that context makes spread of infection much more likely than if you were in a single room. So because we can't just build single rooms like that, what we do is we try and focus on preventing spread and then detecting the superbugs as soon as we can. So in terms of preventing spread, it's lots of that, the infection prevention and control programs. So good hand hygiene by patients and staff. So washing your hands um, or using the alcohol hand gel, keeping the environment and the equipment clean. Um, and also to have a program of auditing and making sure your hygiene standards are high. In terms of detection, um, you don't test every single patient for a superbook. Um, because there's good studies showing that that's simply a waste of money um, and we don't have an unending healthcare budget. But what you do is you focus your detection on people that are much more likely to have a superbug. So people that have been in and out of hospital a lot, people that are on antibiotics, people that are older, or people that have come in from, for example, another hospital or long-term care. And we do this thing called screening, which is essentially you take a swab and you see does the particular superbug in question grow in the laboratory. The next step then is if you detect it, you then try and stop further spread. So usually that means you try and put that patient with the superbug in a single room. If you don't have enough single rooms, what you do is you do a thing called cohorting, which means people with the same superbug end up in the same multi-bedded bay on a hospital ward. Um, and again, you try and limit spread to the other patients that are much more vulnerable. And then the last and very important thing we do in hospitals is 
We call it antimicrobial stewardship, which is really a fancy way of saying using antibiotics wisely and only when indicated and having a strategy. So we've guidelines in Beaumont Hospital, as does every other hospital. Um, we start with kind of, I call them umbrella antibiotics, the broad spectrum antibiotics, and then when we get positive laboratory results, narrow it down. But we've programs to make sure we use antibiotics wisely and appropriately for the, a limited duration of time. Okay, and you, you've said that you're, you know, you, you find out what, you know, if a patient is very sick, you find out what uh, bug that they have and then you find out what antibiotics are likely to work for them. That sounds like a lot of laboratory work. Is, does it take some time then to, to get a, a confirmed diagnosis and to know what antibiotics are going to be the, the most likely to work? So I suppose there's a few layers to that question. The first is when we're doing this thing called screening, we're looking for colonization, not infection. So colonization means that you have a superbug, it's causing you no harm. It's probably part of your microbiome, wherever that is. The reason that so we do, gut, like it could be your gut or it could be in your skin or it could be up your nose. But the reason that you're isolated in hospital is to protect the other patients. But you mightn't even know you have this superbug. Um, when a superbug goes rogue and causes infection, that's when it causes harm. So again in hospital, if you're colonised with a superbug and it's minding its own business, let's say in your skin, and you've a drip in your hand, maybe that's a portal of entry for that superbug that you get an infection. So that's the first bit. So the second bit is, well, how, how long does it take to know what antibiotics to use? So we have the technology and it's getting better. So in the same way we used PCRs for COVID, we're now increasingly using PCR to detect superbugs. And that gives us the name of the superbug. Um, but it still doesn't give you the antibiotics to use. And that takes time. You have to grow it in the laboratory. It's a bit you like a plant. You kind of challenge the bug with the antibiotic, yeah. Yeah, so what we do is we take the swab and we grow it on this jelly plate called an agar plate. And you try and see which antibiotics kill it and which don't. So the examples I gave you earlier with MRSA and CPE, generally with MRSA, you have more options available to treat if it was an infection than with CPE. And you mentioned some of the technologies that are coming down the tracks. Do you mean like technologies that are going to um, speed up that kind of process? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where it's going, because if I'm a patient or if I'm a prescriber, I'm still waiting a few days, as you are in primary care, for results from the laboratory. So, you know, we need to narrow that gap to make it easy for prescribers to know what's the right antibiotic to give. Yeah. yeah. And is, do you, are, are there rapid diagnostics being used in, in primary care that you know of? Or? Not widespread at the moment. A lot, a lot of the time, and I suppose primary care is quite different in the context. It's a lower risk population and we're less likely to, thankfully, to see patients with sepsis. Sometimes we do. And that has with it its own challenges. Um, but I suppose in general practice, we often use the fact that we know our patients very well and that we can see them again. Um, so when we're deciding in individual consultations, it's over maybe 10, 12 minutes and it, it's an isolated decision, but we would often perhaps see the patient again or get the patient to come back again if they're, if they're not getting better. So we use that to help us with, with our diagnoses. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about the, the rapid diagnostics and how, you know, you're on a little bit on the back foot. And so the, the area of research that I'm in is very much in CPE. So, you know, looking at uh, CPE from patients versus CPE in the environment and trying to see how related they are. And it strikes me that as well in infection prevention and control that we are often on the back foot as well because we have to get, you know, get the swabs uh, during an outbreak, let's say, get the swabs from the environment and get them tested in the laboratory. And I suppose the way the research is going that if we could um, get to the stage where we actually have um, routine surveillance of the environment, then we wouldn't be as much on the back foot and that we would be able to almost, you know, in more real time, uh, know what's happening with an outbreak and that would help to, I suppose, mitigate and contain it um, a bit more. So um, I know that uh, another kind of uh, benefit of the COVID pandemic is the, the level of whole genome sequencing that we're doing that we can kind of track if there's mutations happening. Uh, do you see a future for, you know, that kind of thing for some of the superbugs like CPE, so being able to kind of predict what's happening with that and things that we need to, uh, to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely, because see, superbugs are inevitable. Like if I was a bacteria, developing resistance is what I do because I'm a natural survivor. So we're always going to have superbugs for as long as we use antibiotics. So where the technology will help is, as you say, narrow that gap. At the moment, it's very expensive and it requires a lot of expertise. But you know, down the line, really what we want to get to is essentially having a box in a laboratory with the technology in that box, so that when you take the swabs, be it from the patients or from the environment, you get a useful result back sooner rather than later rather than a matter so at the moment we can do it but it's expensive and it yeah. needs a lot of expertise yeah. i have to say we do it in the laboratory like for cpe and it has become much cheaper and easier to do uh, so academically it's very cool to be able to you know read the entire sequence of, of a cpe and even zoom in on the you know the 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 parts that make it antibiotic resistant and what we're learning as well is that you know bacteria are very good as you say when they're under attack sharing that information you know and spreading it around that those those things that make them antibiotic resistance are, are quite mobile uh, but I suppose as I said academically that's really cool for us but we probably need to use that technology to ask the right questions so that they'll they'll benefit the patients and as you say I suppose they're they're costly they require a lot of expertise and we're kind of lucky, I suppose, to, to be living in a, a high resource kind of environment. But in low resource settings, these, these probably aren't going to be very useful, um, which brings in that whole area of, of One Health even. Um, do you want to explain a little bit, Fidelma, maybe about what One Health is um, and, and why it's important? Mm. So I suppose it's a word that's bandied around a lot, isn't it, um, for superbugs. Um, and our own Irish National Action Plan has a One Health approach. So it's recognising that we live in a wider environment. So as a human, um, antibiotic use in humans is linked to antibiotic use in um, animals. It's also linked to antibiotics in food production, in um, the wider kind of wastewater, the wider environment. So we're, what happens in one sector impacts on the other. So I suppose one of the criticisms in the old days 
and not too long ago, is a lot of the superbug kind of action plans were purely focusing on human healthcare. And the, the animal healthcare had its own. And then the wider environment had their own. So the whole concept of One Health is essentially bringing all these sectors in under one umbrella, recognising what happens with one impacts the other and having a coordinated plan. Okay. So I guess people at home might be thinking, well, you know, why can't we just make more antibiotics or make new ones? Um, but there are kind of issues um, with developing new antibiotics, isn't there? Do you want to talk us through some of those? So, so yeah, you're right. Um, so when antibiotics first started getting used in the 1940s, actually it was no big deal when you got resistance because you just got another antibiotic. And then you got resistance to that. So the companies developed another one and another one. But really we've had very few new antibiotics developed in the last 20 to 30 years. So the microbes are getting more and more antibiotic resistant and we've less and less new antibiotics being produced. So there's a pinch point there, um, and so it is a big deal. So at policy level, both nationally and internationally, there's a lot of work and discussions about how do you incentivize companies to invest in research of new antibiotics? Because like we did with the COVID pandemic, if you make it easy for scientists and researchers um, to work on a problem and take away the barriers, look what happens. So we need to start doing that um, and, and incentivize companies to, to basically put a lot of money into re antibiotic research to try and develop new drugs. And interesting, it's exactly the, the, the feeling that I get as well from the research side is that, you know, there are lots of other ways to kill bacteria, but they seem to remain very much in the kind of academic um, spheres mm. uh, because I guess it would take so much investment, you know, to, to do all the clinical trials on something that doesn't have a, a safety profile like some of the kind of more conventional antibiotics. Um, so that's it's really interesting that you say that, yeah. But, but I think we need to learn the lessons from COVID. So what, albeit initially, we, all we did is focus on the one thing. But if you look nationally and internationally, things, barriers that exist for scientists were removed. Um, now, of course, the vaccines that we have didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. They were built on previous research and other vaccines. But notwithstanding that, barriers um, were removed, everything was streamlined, money was put into investment, and we need to do that for antibiotic resistance. Um, it's been called a silent pandemic. Um, and it probably is because we can't get to a point that we're almost running out of antibiotics. Then we're back to a situation where, you know, cesarean sections can't be carried out uh, safely, uh, pacemakers can't be fitted and all of these things. So it's not so much even treating infection, it's all of the other things that we depend on for, um, for, for a healthcare system. Well, it's what I was saying is, is, is at the start, like we use antibiotics to prevent infection. So if you're on chemotherapy, if you've cancer, if you have had, had a transplant or if you have an inflammatory disease and on high dose steroids, um, you're very vulnerable to infection. So some of these patients are take antibiotics either every day or every second day to protect themselves from infection. So if you don't have them, 
Well, you could argue, well, where is chemotherapy going to go and where is transplantation going to go? And that's actually part of the work at policy level to try and bring those two issues together. And so finally, take home message, Caroline. I suppose my take home message would be that antibiotics are important, vital medicines that can be life saving. Um, we all have a responsibility then to ensure that antibiotics remain effective. Um, and that's at the individual patient level, at the prescriber level, um, and at our health system level. Um, I suppose there's, there's a lot of talk these days about sustainability and sustainable healthcare as well, and I think this is an issue there. Um, and also the idea of over-treating and over-diagnosing and how we have a responsibility sometimes to rein it in a little bit. We know that adults will have between two and four upper respiratory tract infections a year, children will have more almost six um, and that's part of what the sort of world we live in today and accepting that um, and sometimes there isn't a quick fix and there isn't a medicine to make it go away. There is things that we can do like ontotheweather.ie has lots of information for what we can do, simple measures um, to treat symptoms associated with these infections. There is vaccination to reduce the risk of contracting COVID-19 and influenza particularly for the at-risk groups. Um, but sometimes as well, doing nothing is, is the right thing to do, even though it can sometimes be difficult to, to do nothing. And Fidelma, take home message? Well, I suppose um, superbugs are inevitable because um, these microbes to survive have to develop resistance, otherwise they'll die. So our efforts have to be at minimising them and preventing spread. Um, and We've talked about sustainability, and I think this problem is a bit like climate change. It's such a huge problem. The individual kind of struggles to figure out where they fit in. And definitely, if you're somebody that's prescribed an antibiotic, I think it's important to take it exactly as it's prescribed, because the kinetics of the antibiotic need it to be taken twice a day, or three times a day, or four times a day, in order for it to kill the bug. Always finish the course because again, what you don't want to do is leave some bugs kind of sleeping and then they'll emerge when you finish the course. Remember, they're very specific medications. They're not like um, kill all known bugs dead. So an antibiotic to treat a chest infection is a totally different antibiotic than one to treat a kidney infection or a skin infection. So the corollary of that is if you're prescribed an antibiotic, don't share it because you could actually do more harm than good and put that other person at risk of side effects as well as the wrong antibiotic. Uh, so thank you very much, Fidelma. Uh, so that concludes our discussion uh, today. My thanks to our speakers, Professor Fidelma Fitzpatrick and Dr. Caroline McCarthy. Further details about upcoming episodes in the RCSI My Health series can be found on the RCSI website. You can also find the RCSI My Health series episodes across all major podcast platforms. RCSI is committed to improving human health and we are ranked first in the world in the Times Higher University Impact Rankings for our impact on good health and well-being. Thanks again to our partners Fleming Medical, an Irish-owned family business with 35 years experience working with pharmacy and healthcare professionals and we are delighted to have had their support in this year's series. From all of us here at RCSI, University of Medicine and Health Sciences, thank you for joining us.
Thank you for listening to RCSI My Health. We hope you found this episode useful and informative. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date on health-related topics directly from the experts. For more information on RCSI My Health series, please visit rcsi.com forward slash my health lectures.